So, I mean, you know, one of the the most important aspects of what we do that I, I would think would be interesting to focus on here is this idea of uncancelability, right? Censorship resistance. And I don't mean just somebody being censored on social media. I'm talking about companies themselves, right? Like, are you building something that can be stopped or are you building something that is itself decentralized and censorship resistant? What's going on, my fellow Bitcoiners? I'm John Cheneau, and welcome to episode 16 of the Bitcoin Path podcast. This is a show where we have deeper conversations about Bitcoin and self-sovereignty, about how this new magic internet money is changing the world and changing ourselves at the same time. In this episode, I get to share with you my conversation with Matt Hill of Start9 Labs. Start9 Labs is the creator of the Embassy, which is a plug-and-play personal server. It offers one-click installation and simple configuration of open-source software services that run over Tor v3. It enables you to run Bitcoin, Lightning, Burn After Reading, Bitwarden, Cups, which is a secure messaging software, along with a growing number of other open-source projects. Be sure to visit startninelabs.com for more information about the product offering and follow them on Twitter at startninelabs. I really enjoyed talking to Matt and I'm really excited to see what the future holds for Start9 Labs as they aspire to revolutionize the personal computing world for the sovereign individual. I really aligned with him in, in this vision and um, just overall, thank you, Matt, again for coming on. It was a pleasure. With that, let's get into this episode. So, I mean, you know, one of the the most important aspects of what we do that I, I would think would be interesting to focus on here is this idea of uncancelability, right? Censorship resistance. And I don't mean just somebody being censored on social media. I'm talking about companies themselves. Right. Like, are you building something that can be stopped or are you building something that is itself decentralized and censorship resistant? And the challenges that come along with that, like building something that can't be stopped inherently means that you are uh, irrelevant at, at scale. Right. Like if if stopping me stops the company, stops the technology, then we, we are not censorship resistant. And therefore, the technologies we're building are not censorship resistant. Um, and so how do you simultaneously build a business that is centered around people um, and make it such that those people are infinitely replaceable uh, as you grow? Um, and then how do you capture value along the way for yourselves and shareholders such that you can all uh, profit from your the value that you are adding to the world, which is a worthwhile endeavor, in my opinion, um, that there's that's a good thing. So, yeah, I mean, we should we should get into that. I guess I'll uh, kind of give an introduction. Yeah. of the company, uh, of myself and my partners, um, for people who are completely unfamiliar with, with Start9 and what we do. Um, we are a computer company, uh, first and foremost. Um, I don't like to think of us as a software company or a hardware company or a uh, Bitcoin company. Um, we're a computer company. We are interested in um, uh, revolutionizing personal computing. Uh, and I, I use that term in, in its full meaning. I do not mean some sort of iterative development or evolutionary development on personal computing, but an, an actual revolution, a new way of thinking about how humans and computers 
uh, interact on, in, in a global uh, sense as, you know, in a networked sense. Um, so, you know, it is helpful to have a brief history uh, and I mean really brief and, you know, broad category history of personal computing. Uh, you have the very early personal computers, which are, you know, the early IBMs, um, and Apple and Microsoft. And these things were, um, these were bricks, you know, that sat in your home and, uh, or in a, in a university and, you know, everything that happened on these computers stayed on these computers. You, you know, uh, you installed software via physical media. So, uh, you stick in a floppy disk and install some software onto your hardware and then you would use it. And all the data uh, that was produced in that software was stored on a hard drive on the computer. And there it remained uh, forever until you personally stuck in a different, you know, hard disk, floppy disk and copied it and then brought it to another computer. So there was no connectivity, which was a problem, right? I mean, these computers were essentially just uh, augmentations of our own computing power, personal computers. We would sit there and they would just grant us more power. We could do calculations. We could do word processing uh, more efficiently than ever before. And this was a huge win. Uh, the problem was, is that we couldn't, you know, we couldn't talk to each other through these computers, which is where the modern internet came in, you know, really got legs with America online, uh, Netscape navigator, uh, the idea of browsers and, you know, the, the worldwide web uh, came into existence. But even at that time, most of the data produced on the computer was still on the computer and you had to explicitly share things uh, with other computers that there was still computing was still relatively private and personal. Uh, and over time, what, what happened was we evolved this current hub and spoke cloud structure of personal computing where um, it's anything but personal anymore, right? You, everything that you do, even utilizing applications on your computer are essentially always talking to the cloud, are always feeding data back. I mean, I went and got the company and Adobe, uh, you know, suite subscription this morning because we have needs for for Illustrator and Photoshop and you know, um, these you know these advanced animation uh, uh, software, and you can't buy software from Adobe and install it on your computer and and, and just use it. You you have to use their cloud platform. And you have to pay monthly. It's all cloud and it's all subscription, which means it's it's not mine. I'm just renting this software indefinitely. And not only that, but the things I use uh, the software for, the products of the software, all our logos, everything that we create is by default just sitting on Adobe servers uh, subject to their deletion. Uh, you know, I can make backups. I can make copies. I can even go through extraordinary efforts to maybe not use their cloud but the non-technical default is just like you are renting and you are beholden. And, um, and it's really, uh, it's, you know, that might sound kind of inconvenient or, or just weird, but when you really understand what's happening here, uh, it actually starts to sound quite dangerous. Um, and so that's where, where we come in is, you know, we view the first computing, uh, the first personal computers is like, you know, the introduction. Then there was a computing revolution where we moved it to the cloud and that's where we are now. Um, and we believe that this is the next computing revolution, which is that we utilize advanced cryptography and decentralized uh, pr network protocols to, uh, to bring computing back to the individual uh, 
ownership over data and communications without losing the interconnectedness of the modern web. So you get the best of both worlds. You get the best of the early computers in terms of uh, privacy, and you get the best of the uh, modern cloud infrastructure in terms of accessibility and interconnectedness. And um, we found that sweet spot. We actually found how to do that. <laughs> um, and hmm. and uh, that's what we're building. And, um, you know, we're very relatively unknown as a company. Um, we've only been around for just over a year. I think we're in our 15th month right now. And um, what we have done in those 15 months, uh, we are very proud of. Uh, we have built an enormous amount of technology uh, with very few people in limited time. And it, um, we are now growing and going to blow people away with what's coming down the pipeline here. Um, I know you said yourself that you don't have one of these devices or wait, did you say that? Do you have one? No, I don't. I, I have a couple full, no full node implementations. Yep. I don't know, Raspberry Pi, but uh, yet to uh, do Go, the embassy. With, yeah. Um, you know, when we first came onto the market, people were uh, calling us a full node, right? Yeah, a mm -hmm. plug and play full node. And because, and when I say people, I mean Bitcoiners, because that's where we, that was our, our niche market, right? We came, we entered the market through unconfiscatable uh, conference. And then we went to BitBlock mm -hmm. Boom. And, you know, we had some connections on Twitter and that's, that's basically it. I mean, we, we just kind of tiptoed into the market uh, entering through the, the Bitcoiner space, not even really the crypto, you know, uh, space, but Bitcoin. Um, mm -hmm. And of course, the fact that this thing is a Raspberry Pi that runs a Bitcoin node with the push of a button, we were immediately just categorized as like, <clears throat> you know, uh, a Casa, my node, uh, um, and there's a few others. And, um, and that wasn't totally inaccurate. I mean, we did offer what they offered, but I think people are slowly starting to realize that what we are building here um, is, is much broader than a Bitcoin node. Uh, its capabilities are practically infinite in terms of what it could do um, from a utilitarian perspective. Like what this thing is capable of is almost anything you can imagine when it comes to human computer interaction. When I say this thing, I don't mean the box. I mean the software, Embassy OS, okay? The fact that we sell hardware devices with Embassy OS pre-installed um, is really just an artifact of, of our recognition that most people don't want to do anything technical, right? Uh, right. Like, yes, you can get your own Raspberry Pi you could compile our code from source and pay nothing for it and put it on the Raspberry Pi. Very few people are going to do that. Um, you could get a Raspberry Pi and buy a pre-imaged, uh, pre-compiled version of Embassy OS with much less effort and put it on the Pi and buy that from us for the convenience. Or you could buy a device and plug it into the wall. And mm -hmm. everyone's doing the latter. Right? Like, uh, we're not going after technical Bitcoiners. That's not our target market. We are going after everyday people who are sick of their communications and data being um, hijacked and, and confiscated uh, by uh, large corporations, cloud service providers, and even governments. Um, right. You know? Yeah. And so what's fascinating about that is even like a year ago or, you know, a year ago, the, the, 
atmosphere, the culture around digital privacy, I, I think was totally different. You know, I have friends who, I, my friend that I live with right now, we were traveling in Europe and we had this conversation about digital privacy. And I was like, so don't, don't you like care about people, you know, using, having access to your, to your data or like the vulnerabilities that you might have uh, around this. And, you know, it's very just kind of carefree, like, uh, well, what would they, what would they want to do with it? You know, like, mm -hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not that worried, but um, as we've, gone through this previous year and seen just so much overreach in, in all these different areas. It's, uh, it's kind of, I really think it's shifting people's consciousness and awareness to, to really be a lot more open to, uh, to the solutions that companies like, like you guys are, are offering. So it, it, are you experiencing a similar change, like in terms of an uptick in, of interest in your guys' product? We I absolutely mean, did. Especially um, after the Trump and uh, Parler events. It's hard to pinpoint specific uh, events in terms mm -hmm. of cause and effect, but the general trend is that, you know, what we see uh, is that people are caring more and more about digital privacy, but I'll go further than that. We're not really selling digital privacy. We're selling digital sovereignty of which privacy is one affordance, right? Like you right. being, being sovereign implies that you can have privacy. Right. Right. But yeah, cause you can have privacy even if you're not sovereign, it's just not guaranteed, right? Like things like, <clears throat> you know, we saw, uh, once the Trump and Parler incidents happened, incidents happened, we saw a massive migration from things like WhatsApp, uh, Facebook Messenger to things like Signal, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. private end-to-end -end encrypted messengers. Um, they're selling privacy, right? But they are not selling sovereignty. Um, the privacy is custodial. It is uh, hosted, right? The privacy right. is a privilege. It is Signal saying we value your privacy. We have built software that enforces those values, but there's an element of trust. There is uh, not only trust that signal themselves uh, are not being malicious, which I have no reason to believe they are. In fact, I would bet good money that the signal software, it does what it says it does. Um, but you are trusting a few other things, right? You are trusting that, um, it will remain that way uh, in the face of potential state-backed legislation and force. Um, mm -hmm. We have multiple bills, earn it and lead uh, in, in specifically, that are bills working their way through the U.S. Congress that purport to make end-to-end -end encryption, uh, uh, I'll, I'll call it... Uh, you know, um, unbreakable end-to-end -end encryption illegal, that they service providers of privacy and encryption would be required by law to build in backdoors. Um, you know, lead is called the lawful access to encrypted data. It basically means data can be encrypted in private, but there needs to be lawful access to it, as in we need to have a master key that can view everything. And um, so when you use Signal, it's not just that you're trusting Signal, it's that you're trusting uh, 
you're trusting the the macro uh, environment in which Signal exists and is subject to uh, and could change at the whim of a group of people, a group of individuals who are corruptible. Uh, secondly, um, things like Signal do not afford um, privacy in terms of network graphs, right? So just because the message itself is end-to-end encrypted, right? You and I can send each other messages. Uh, Signal absolutely knows that you and I are talking. Hmm. They know that we are having a conversation. They know the frequency of messages. They know exactly when those messages are taking place. Even if because the content it's connected is, to the phone number too, right? Well, it's like not they, only they know that. Yeah, they know who you are. It's, it, right. they, your, your actual real-world government identity is attached to your Signal account, and maybe you <laughs> right. could work around it using burners and stuff like that. But we're talking about non-technical people here. The vast majority of people using Signal are going to use it in the standard way which means that their identity is attached to their activity and that everyone they interact with is known. Uh, The frequency is known. The timing is known. All of that is known. The only thing that might not be known, and I say might because, again, there is an element of trust there, is the content of the messages. And so while that is a step in the right direction, I would argue, towards privacy, demonstrating that people care about privacy, it is ultimately uh, inadequate. It's ultimately just not going to solve the problem because the problem exists at a deeper layer of society than simply Google scanning the contents of your email. The problem is bigger than that. It's the fact that they are relaying those emails in the first place and could choose to turn it off, could choose to spoof uh, where an email is coming from, right? You can't trust mm-hmm. uh, communications. You can't Uh, ensure that your data are safe. Hmm. And so we offer a sovereign solution. We are moving, the the little slogan on the back of our t-shirts says sovereign computing, right? Mm -hmm. It's not about privacy. Privacy is a very important artifact of what sovereign computing affords, but it is not what we are after. Uh, We are trying to put individuals in control, sovereign, unbreakable, permissionless control of their data and communications through computers, which has never been done before, uh, prior to the original computers, which were sort of sovereign by default, but uh, siloed, isolated. You couldn't do all the powerful things that we want to do with computers. Um, And solving this was, is a riddle. It is extremely difficult stuff that we are trying to pull off here. And that is a major differentiation between things like Start9 and many of the other sort of Bitcoin nodes in the space, is that those are not sovereign computing platforms. Those are sovereign application products, right? You are buying a product that does a single thing or maybe a couple of things in a sovereign way. And for that reason, we support them. We absolutely endorse, support, and encourage people to buy and use these full Bitcoin node or Bitcoin stack based products. But ultimately, they don't solve the, the, the depth of the problem that we are attempting to solve, which is data and communications at large, of which Bitcoin is only one piece of it, a very important piece. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't fix everything. Bitcoin fixes this as a wonderful meme, and it just doesn't extend to international 
corporate and government espionage on individuals and coercion and force. It, does, it doesn't solve all of that. It's just a great step in the right direction. And it shows us how to solve those things. Unless it incentivizes you guys to create a computer company <laughs> that, uh, that solves, that solves the problems. It did. Just, just thinking in the, in the purest, in the, in the Bitcoin maximalist vein, you know, what, yeah, well, what they that's might what say, I mean. right? It showed us yeah. how, right? Mm -hmm. I've said this before. I said this at my BitBlock boom talk last year was, you know, Bitcoin mm -hmm. is the inspiration. Not only is it the hero of the story, right? Bitcoin is your, your hero that you send in to fight the, the other army's hero one-on-one, -on -one, you know, so that nobody else has mm -hmm. to fight. It's like, it is the, it's the battle cry. It's the hero. It's the thing that we need because without it, every, all is lost. Bitcoin is the hero of the story, but heroes need support and armies. And like, we, mm -hmm. we can't just, we can't just buy Bitcoin, hodl it, cross our fingers and be like, everything's going to be okay. Right. It's a great start, but mm -hmm. we have to, this is bigger than that. Okay. There are forces at work here. Um, I don't think people quite understand myself included. I'm sure, uh, how, how influential fear can be. Okay. Mm -hmm. Like if, if, if this really gets dangerous as in if Bitcoin really you know, keeps going and it's going to the people that Bitcoin is disrupting are, are not going to just turn over. All right. I, I read the sovereign individual, uh, the book, and it was yeah. the thing in my life that I can point to that more than anything else that turned me from a pessimist to an optimist. Right. Mm -hmm. I understood the problems. I had already been aware of Bitcoin at the time when I read that book and was aware of its potential to solve some of these problems but I still just looked out at the establishment. I looked out at the status quo and I said, how do you, how do you beat that? Like I, I was campaigning right. for Ron Paul in 2012. Okay. I'm, you know, a libertarian nice. ideologically and he was, and is a, a hero. I think he will be remembered as such. Um, and I was, you know, in Tampa at the Ron Paul rally during the Republican convention. Hmm. And I watched what happened to him in 2012, because there was a real political, intellectual political movement taking place behind Ron Paul. Mm -hmm. And there was a real opportunity to affect real change. And it, it was, he had a plan, like a real, it was in my mind, that was almost our last chance was Ron Paul 2012. That was like, we got to get this right. For like that. within the system. Yeah, for, to for... save the existing system, to implement mm -hmm. freedom-based libertarian ideology politically. Like, I viewed that as our last chance to win politically through the existing political channels. Mm -hmm. And they just went like this with him. It was almost like a fly. He was, like, annoying, mm -hmm. and they were just like, forget that. Just don't say his name on the mainstream media. You know, every time you do say his name, talk about him like crazy old Ron Paul. Like, talk about him like a clown, but mostly just mm -hmm. don't say his name. And it made me realize how powerful uh, our social media and traditional media systems are, right? Like I, I was already acutely aware of kind of the power of propaganda, the power of sort of information control over information, but it mm -hmm. wasn't until I saw how swiftly Ron Paul, this leader of a movement was dealt with. And I, I would imagine that a lot of the Bernie Sanders supporters feel the same way, 
right? Because mm-hmm. it was just, he didn't fit the bill of that party. And it's just, you can just kind of like get rid of these people. Um, and uh, I, I was very depressed. I was like, how do, you, how do you beat that? How do you fight back against something that powerful, that big and powerful? Um, and then I read Sovereign Individual. And I said, okay, 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 okay. You can, yeah. technology drives politics. You can, you can affect structural political change by inventing new technologies that change the incentive structures. All you have to do mm-hmm. is change the incentive structures of society and politics will eventually sort of like get in line, right? It will, that incentives are everything and technology can be used to change incentive structures. And this is what Bitcoin is doing. And from that moment on, I was like, not only can we win this, not only are we on the, on the eve of a glorious era of humanity that involves interplanetary travel and artificial intelligence and personal robots and all this stuff, but that we can actually help it get there, that this is not some uh, predetermined future that's going to happen you know, whether we like it or not, it's that as individuals, we have a choice to make right now to either manifest a free and prosperous future based on uh, freedom, uh, mm-hmm. that, you know, and uh, respect for the individual, or we can go down this Orwellian path um, resulting in kind of this, this dystopian, you know, authoritarian control. And the, pan, historic- the panopticon, right? Of complete surveillance and yeah we're really close actually um you know and and uh but the story is is unfolding today right now this is as as hot as as it gets we're in the a battle scene right now and we're in a fight for the future and again bitcoin is at the center of this it is the the um, the inspiration behind all of it and we are trying to come in and help in any way that we can and what that means is building infrastructure, okay? Computing infrastructure that prohibits this kind of like uh, control, this kind of top-down control of, of personal, individual data and communications. Um, Bitcoin needs this. It needs the plug-and-play nodes. It needs what we are doing if it is to survive because if you have one Bitcoin node running, in the world, Bitcoin still works in terms of your ability to transact, but it's just the old system, right? Mm-hmm. Somebody is like Bitcoin is a peer-to-peer decentralized protocol only insofar as the network itself is peer-to-peer and decentralized. And so if there's two nodes running and both of them are on AWS, then mm-hmm. you're back to where we are. Right. Everyone's got to run a node. We need people running nodes, um, not just for the health of the network, but for yourself it's for you right you you gain selfish benefit from running a node you don't have to trust anybody right um, right matt there there's a lot here that i know that i'd love to i just kept I, going i'm sorry no i love it it's <laughs> it's fucking awesome um and but but there's so many things that i want to dig into because you know i think about this stuff all the time and I know I'm not alone, but I'm not, but I'm also not in the majority, a lot of, uh, you know, we, 
we kind of see things happening, especially after reading the sovereign individual. Um, and I'm, I'm very much like yourself. I read it, you know, twice in a row and I was like, wow, I see the trajectory. Like, how did I, why did I not read this when I was in like high school and when it was written in 90, 98, you know, but, um, but it does give you that glimpse of a positive trajectory, right? Where the, the mega political power dynamics are changing in the sense of the defensive uh, technology is there to prevent any, prevent like mass intrusion into sovereign yeah. individuals uh, ability to do what they want uh, and to communicate and, and to communicate and deliver value however they want and, and et cetera. But so bringing that into like this current scenario that we that we're living in right now right now the reality is right that amazon web services runs pretty much all the internet right they're hosting probably 40 or 50 percent i think yeah okay 40 so like man it's rough a, numbers i don't know sure yeah a critical a critical mass or whatever yeah. um and you know i talked to friends who have companies and they're like they have to use AWS in a lot of ways it's uh, just they've made it so easy and so um, cost cost effective and 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 it's advanced the technology is like improving all the time so they're able to just like develop more and more services uh, and you have talked to enough well have you ever have you even considered about like hosting your own <laughs> you know your own server and and being uh and he's like no yeah not at all. like they're like no i don't even know where to start yeah right right i don't even know what that looks like anymore nobody does it right so there's aws as but also one thing that i'm that i'd like another thing i'd like to get your thoughts about is uh how we're running um it, you have to forgive my my technical knowledge is is not like that advanced but i know that when we're connecting to the internet, we're still using our uh, internet ISPs, right? So those are quite centralized as well. And even the hardware that they're using to connect to each other um, is owned by private company, private telecom companies, right? So um, I'd love to get your thoughts of like how how this is sort of coming in um, and and how the embassy is able to give someone that complete sovereignty over their data and, and, uh, and connect to almost a new, a new network, right? A new network of, uh, yeah. Of sovereign individuals in that, in that atmosphere. Yep. So, um, you know, as I mentioned before, um, we are building advanced technology here. Um, we have not, I, I do not in any way want to diminish the, the product utility of some of the other kind of plug and play Bitcoin nodes. Mm -hmm. But there is a fundamental difference in the architectural approach in that what they are doing essentially is taking a operating system like Ubuntu or Linux. Uh, Ubuntu is a distro of Linux and, mm -hmm. uh, sort of prepackaging a bunch of services, a bunch of applications, 
uh, into like a bash script. Like, uh, you know, you push a button, you know, okay, if I'm a developer and I want to run Bitcoin and Lightning and BTC Pay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to install Bitcoin. I'm going to do all the commands. I'm going to do all the things, right? I'm going to install the dependencies and everything and I'm going to have Bitcoin. Then I go, right. okay, I want to run Lightning and I do all those other technical things. And then I go, okay, BTC Pay. What they have done is they've taken that effort, that mm-hmm. series of events that needs to happen and they turn it into a, a script, right? Just right. to like push the button and it'll do it all for you. Okay. And that is beautiful. And it's, it's, it's great. It's a huge step in the right direction because it allows somebody who doesn't know how to do all those steps to basically get up and running. The problem with that approach, the challenge is that it is what is called rigid. It's like, this is what we have packaged. Okay. It's a bundle of things. And you could even make it appear like it's not really a bundle by allowing you to sort of like turn on and off these things. Right. Or even have it be like hidden from your screen until you install it and then it shows up. But the, the point is, is that the operating system sort of shipped with all of this stuff. Okay. And uh, Umbral has recently made strides towards moving towards a more modular system like we have, which is that you can actually like kind of shop for a new service to install and it will grab it, presumably from a registry that they host and install it onto your box. It's good, right? The problem there is that the number of things that can be done and the scalability of the system itself is inherently limited because everything has to be self-contained, right? In these Docker images. And we leverage Docker as well. So it's not a criticism of Docker or that architectural approach. It's, it is that you go to install this thing and you get everything that it needs. So for instance, if I want to install um, Bitcoin, I'm getting everything that it needs, Okay. And I want to then install Lightning, and it gets everything that it needs, um, except for Bitcoin, by the way, right? Lightning needs Bitcoin. So they sort of made an exception. They were like, okay, okay. For these layer two Bitcoin networks, Lightning and BTC Pay and all that stuff, we're going to assume that they need Bitcoin. So there's this dependency. It's like you get Bitcoin whether you like it or not, basically. And then you can install things that need Bitcoin to function. Right. Where the problem would come in is what if you needed something else? Okay, so let's say I wanted to run something like Mastodon. Mm-hmm. Okay, I want to self-host my own instance of Mastodon. Well, Mastodon depends on both Postgres and Redis. Okay, these are two different types of databases, and they're quite heavy. Like these are like substantial pieces of software that in yeah. themselves are things that you could configure if you were advanced, and they're, they're databases, they're data stores, okay? Mm-hmm. And Mastodon needs both of these things. So if you want to put Mastodon onto a system like that, what you have to do is package up Mastodon, Postgres, and Redis and put them all into a Docker container, a single container, and then ship that to the user. And this whole thing will just run and it'll just work, which is fantastic. But now let's say you want to go install something, some other service that also needs Postgres and Redis, okay? Now what you have to do is do this other thing again. You have to package it all up and ship that whole thing. So now your little Raspberry Pi is running Postgres twice. It's running Redis twice. It doesn't scale, right? You can't, right. You can't put the infinitude of possibilities onto a machine where you are redundantly installing things over and over again, okay? Mm-hmm. 
And so we have built an extremely sophisticated dependency management system and people who use the embassy have, have commented on this and just been like, whoa, like this thing is completely modular. I go to install Lightning, like I can get my embassy and install LND without even installing Bitcoin. I install LND and LND immediately is going to install and tell me in very clear language, like I'm not going to work. Mm-hmm. You need Bitcoin for me to work. So push this button and it'll go get you to get Bitcoin. Okay. So what happens is we start to feel like the Ikea of furniture, of, of personal computing. It's like nothing comes pre-assembled. The whole thing comes in parts, but mm-hmm. the ability to put the parts together can be done by a six-year-old. Right. That is our value proposition is we're like, look, we don't make these decisions for you because if we did, our platform would be inherently rigid and unscalable. We are going to let you build whatever you want to build in this Lego sort of a way, but we're not going to let you screw it up. And we're going to make it very, very clear how to do it. And we've actually found that people enjoy this from a almost self-esteem perspective. They're like, I did it. I didn't just push a button and have everything running. I like went and got Bitcoin. Then I got lightning. Then I installed this. Then I configured them to do this. But the Mm -hmm. whole thing was very guided, very Mm -hmm. almost impossible to mess up. And, um, and it enables us to scale indefinitely. We can add anything that can be self-hosted, that is open source and self-hosted, anything can be added to the embassy. And by the time this year is over, people's jaws are going to drop at how many services the embassy offers. By the end of this year, you will be able to do on your embassy almost everything that you'd normally do through the cloud-based custodial model of personal computing. It's not going to be as smooth. It's not going to be as convenient, right? It's going to be a little slower, Mm -hmm. but it will be tolerable. It will be, it will have passed the sort of threshold of tolerance, right? People Mm -hmm. want convenience, need convenience. We get that. And we will in due time, strive to match the convenience of Google cloud, right? Of like, of all these totally hosted custodial systems, but it's going to be a trek. It's going to take us a while before we can really make it seamless. Right. But I don't want that to scare people. We have entirely non-technical people who would never in their wildest dreams be able to, I shouldn't say that anyone can do anything if they put enough effort into it, but who would never put the amount of effort into setting these things up themselves succeed in a matter of minutes and with no effort at setting up their own self-hosted file server, like their own private self-hosted Dropbox equivalent, uh, peer-to-peer right. messaging systems, um, self-hosted password management with browser extensions such that you can browse the internet and autofill all your usernames and passwords, have great security, and not have to remember a single one of them and not have to trust anyone to store those passwords for you and keep them safe. That's what it's Bitwarden, right? Bitwarden. It's awesome. Bitwarden is the most useful thing on the store right now. It is more useful on a daily basis for our customers than Bitcoin by far, right? Mm -hmm. You use Bitwarden. Everything you do, you're constantly using it. And every time you use it, there's, I'm telling you, there's this little feeling of just, yeah, like I just logged into that custodial site with a with a browser extension running over Tor, fetching passwords from a box that sits in my living room in total <laughs> privacy. And there's this feeling yeah. of power. It's like uh, you feel powerful. 
when you control your data in private? Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I do that just, I, I just open a Tor browser to access my Bitwarden account now and, and just copy and paste everything. But I imagine it'd be like, well, but you, um, do you run your own Bitwarden server? No, no, I don't. Sure. So, so that would, that would add a whole other. Yeah. So you're you know, just, you're just using Bitwarden's computers right, to store right. your passwords, right? Which is right. again, using a password manager is a good idea. Mm -hmm. And the Bitwarden software is open source and the team is great. And I'm sure they don't have backdoors built into your passwords. But the bottom line is that if a Bitwarden server goes down or you become a person of interest and suddenly you mm -hmm. get flipped off, all your passwords are gone. You can't do anything, <laughs> right? Yeah. You, could be, you could be cut off yeah. from every single digital activity that you do with the flip of a button by anyone yeah. <laughs> with that's, authority to make that's that fucking call. scary. Right. I love Bitwarden. <laughs> But use mm -hmm. it self-hosted. Run right. your own Bitwarden server. Okay, now go do that. You're not going to mm -hmm. because it's this like command line adventure. You're going to go to the repo. You're going to you're going to have to install this database and then do this and this and this with an embassy. Yeah. Which I, can, I you know thankfully <laughs> like I've I've get, tried to like push myself right. I'm I'm kind of in this world, so I want to like you know learn and I'm downloading Ubuntu and running the command line and downloading open open source software but yeah but not my mom or like my brother no they're no. not gonna do that right no so they probably won't um and like i said anyone can uh right. it is possible but we we know the fact is that they won't uh right. we've seen this we know that look people are busy the world is loud it's fast nobody has time mm -hmm. to go learn this stuff um you know the ones that do great i encourage it but that's not who we're catering to we are a computer company a personal computer mass market company um mm -hmm. and therefore our product has to be accessible to the least technical the least common denominator of society which is an incredible challenge from a ux ui reliability support customer support standpoint i mean it's just like what we are attempting to do is is a little crate it's a little outrageous right it's a big big yeah. thing um you know, I wanted to dive in a little bit more too uh, for maybe some of the more technical listeners, uh, but also not into sort of what is unique about our system, what unique value propositions Embassy OS offers over, say, some of our competitors. And I had mentioned this dependency management system, this idea that service A needs service B, but service D needs both services A and B, but only if service F is not installed, right? Like it's this incredibly right. graphic um network interdependency system that can handle anything, uh, any arbitrary number or uh, direction of dependencies. That's huge. The other thing that we offer, which is uh, oftentimes not appreciated until you have to do it, is configuration. So when yeah. you are somebody who is installing self-hosted services and running them, there are what there's what's called sort of settings, configurations, right? Like this service will run differently depending on choices that you make in the settings menu. So a Bitcoin node, for instance, you, there's like hundreds of settings that you can change in this menu, restart the service, restart Bitcoin, and it'll behave differently. It's like, mm -hmm. it's a running a different, you know, it runs in a different way. And um, these configuration sets can often be very intimidating. Okay, when you go into your bitcoin.conf file, it is incredibly intimidating. And not only that, 
it is not comprehensive, as in the file itself doesn't even list all of the possibilities, possible ways that you can configure Bitcoin. And there's no protections. I could go in there and change some value that's default value is 100 and change it to the word hello. Okay, it used to be 100. I change it to hello and I go restart Bitcoin and it explodes. Okay, right. <laughs> like because it's going to try to read this value and it's not the right kind of value. It's, you know, it needed to be between one and 100 and I wrote 1,000. Okay, right. There's no protections. And so here you go again. You're off on the internet looking at the things and looking for documentation and you've just lost everyone again. Yeah. yeah. So what do they do? They don't touch the defaults, which means they're not getting the power of the system. Configuration is immensely powerful. Customization, right? Mm -hmm. And we built, like our dependency management system, and not yet fully appreciated by many because we're still relatively unknown, we built an incredibly sophisticated configuration system where the developer, the person who sort of builds this app and hosts it on our store, can define all these possibilities. So some work goes into this, make no mistake, but we are benefiting the end user, right? Mm -hmm. And so you define, you say, okay, here's the Bitcoin configuration set. You can do this option and it can be a number. And that number needs to be between this value and this value. Oh, and by the way, I would like to show this on a screen with a warning that tells the user if they change this value, any bad things that might happen. And I want to, and so it's this really elaborate system that results at the end of the day. So it starts off as a file that a developer puts together, basically a set of rules. You're, you're making a contract almost. You're saying, here's what's allowed, here's what's not allowed for all these various options. But at the end of the day, the way that that represents to the user, the way that it presents to the end user of the product is just this beautiful little menu of toggles and dropdowns and input boxes where you can't mess it up. You start putting right. in numbers, you know, it says pick a number between one and a hundred and you start typing the word hello. It's going to be like, sorry, this is going to explode if we let you do this. So you're not going to be allowed to do it. And it comes with a description of what that option does. It, um, mm -hmm. and it's very, very guided. We even have it such that every time you update a service, if there's new options, it's like, Hey, there's these new configuration options. You didn't even know existed before. Check them out. Here's what they do. You can do this and mm -hmm. you can't screw it up. And nobody offers that, not even close, because right. the way that I would configure my Bitcoin node on one of the other sort of plug and play nodes is, sure, I plug it into the wall, I push a button and my Bitcoin and Lightning nodes are running. But if I want to configure it, if I want to edit it in any way, oh boy, it's put an SSH key on that thing, <laughs> SSH in, get on the command line, go to the Bitcoin.com file, use Vim or Nano and start editing things and yes. hope you don't destroy it. And it's right. just it's over. Nobody's going to do it. And that's just Bitcoin. We can do this for everything, right? Mm -hmm. So every service that we add is not only like you can't screw up the installation and the dependencies, but once it's added, now you can customize it in a way that you can't screw up. You can start it. You can stop it. Everything is modular mm -hmm. um, and scalable. Um, and so that yeah. is our real value proposition is that we've built a general purpose, user-friendly graphical operating system for running self-hosted software. Anyone who understands what I just said is going to go, holy shit, the world has needed that for two decades. How the hell doesn't it exist already? Right. And the only answer to that question is because we hadn't built it yet. I mean, we right. literally, we at Start9 had not built it yet because we're building it.
and it works. Right. It's awesome. You got to try it. That's <laughs> By awesome, the way, man. if that's not a sales pitch, I don't know what is. You got to try this. <laughs> I'm um, out of it. You, you sold me, man. Yeah, just you got me. Advise <laughs> you got. You can get the OS directly from us. You don't even have to buy the device. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's awesome because it's a very. I mean, it's gonna. I see this. You know, it's definitely the future, and it's gonna change the way that people interact with their computers, right? Because we're used to getting a like an iPhone that it just is what it is, and I just like add apps, and I'm not like customizing it very much um so the the ability to um I, yeah I, I just think that's a really cool element um that's added into the sovereignty aspect of it um to where not only do you have privacy not only do you have you know sovereignty over over your data and what you're actually doing here um but you can um, can adapt it and and improve it and customize it to your own particular needs. So yes, it's under the umbrella of sovereignty, right? That's mm-hmm. why I said that we're not a privacy company; we are a sovereignty company, and we put right. we put under the umbrella of sovereignty is as much control as you want over your stuff. You should be able to have. So selling yeah. somebody a pre-built, pre-bundled set of software that is very difficult to break apart and very difficult to configure is not sovereign. It's not as right. sovereign as it could be, right? I want mm-hmm. control over my computers. Mm-hmm. And, and then it starts to get crazy, okay? Where, the, where, 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 where people really start to recognize what we're doing here is when they start thinking about uh, alternative devices, not just software, not just me messaging you or me storing data in the cloud, but you start thinking about the locks on your home, the thermostat in your home, your smart refrigerator, right? Mm -hmm. You start thinking about these these internet-connected devices, and the word sovereignty starts to take on a whole new meaning, a visceral one, right? People react emotionally to the idea that devices in their home are not under their control, right? You yeah, might yeah. be okay with sort of like your text messages bouncing off of Signal's servers or Apple's servers. You might be okay with Google storing your pictures, but a lot of people, even who are okay with those things, are not okay with a smart speaker sitting in their living room that is sort of always listening to everything they're saying and feeding that information to a centralized server that then analyzes it in order to extrapolate as much value from you as possible and sell it to others who are going to do the same. Mm -hmm. That's the red line for people. It's not Google has my photos. It's Alexa is listening. And there is no solution in the works right now that nothing except for us that we are aware of we are the only company that has made meaningful headway towards a future of sovereign internet of things connected devices um and the reason for that is because in order to do that in order to have a security camera in your home that captures footage Mm -hmm. sends it to a server that you control And then your ability to view that footage from the other side of the world 
in privacy without any third parties being trusted along the way, in order to set up that system, which can be done, by the way, today, that can be done. There are people in this world who can set that system up. Setting up that system is 10 times as difficult as setting up a Bitcoin node. So if people are buying plug and play Bitcoin nodes, right, if they're willing to say, look, it's too technical for me to set up my Bitcoin node, I want this thing that I can plug into a wall and run it. How much more likely do you think they're going to be to buy a security camera that affords that offers the same value proposition, which is Uh, plug this thing into the wall, tap your phone to it, and you're basically running what used to be a Nest Cam, all the luxuries, everything. You can view it from anywhere in the world, except nothing goes to third parties. Everything is under your sovereign control. And the only way that that can be built, that system can be built, is using the architectural approach that I described earlier with dependency management and configuration. You're never going to get that system from a bundled sort of prepackaged uh, brute force rigid approach to running self-hosted software. You need a modular, scalable, graphical operating system approach. And that's what we're building. So we are, while we are not selling IoT devices yet, um, we are building- IoT, what does that stand for? Internet of Things. Oh, Internet of Things, right. It basically means a device that is connected to the internet. Right. To the cloud, which everything is going to be, okay? Mm -hmm. Your your chair, your massage chair will be connected to the internet, right? Mm -hmm. That little bike back there connected to the internet. These things Mm -hmm. are all connected and Mm -hmm. we want them connected. There's benefits to that, enormous benefits to having your physical devices connected to uh, the internet because you can use them and control them from anywhere in the world, which Mm -hmm. is amazing. The problem is, is that right now it's all just being held in custody. All that information is flooding to a couple servers so that you can access it from everywhere. Why not flood it to your own server? Right. Access it from anywhere. And the reason is one reason alone, which is that it's too hard to do. Right. Because right now, in order to do that, you need to set up a VPS, right? Uh, Your own personal. Or Tor. Okay. Yeah, you can. Well, VPS. Okay. So so VPS stands for Mm -hmm. uh, Virtual Private Server. And what that means right. is, is that it's not a physical device, that you are literally mm-hmm. renting hardware from mm-hmm. Amazon or DigitalOcean. Those are VPSs. It's like, okay. I don't have a server. I don't have any physical server, but I want to run my own server. Yep. So I'm just going to rent physical space on your servers, which again is a step in the right direction in terms of self-hosting. But if you're running it on Amazon's computer. It can just be turned off. Yeah. You know, you if you don't have physical access to the physical device, it's not sovereign. Mm-hmm. It's still somebody else's computer. You've just they just given you control over it for a while. You know. Right. Um, so right. that's a VPS. Now a VPN, virtual private network, is different. That is you connecting hardware devices on a private virtual network, as in you're sort of using the internet, the ISPs, the the physical infrastructure of the internet to run a private network that is hidden. And those are quite useful. Uh, VPNs can be a very useful tool for privacy. Yeah. Um, So theoretically you could have uh, your, you, you could have multiple hardware devices in various, in different geographical locations connected to each other through through Tor 
and accessing that network. So you have redundancy built into the system as well in case one one location is compromised. Yeah, in, in theory. So we actually don't offer that yet, but we are yeah. building that. So right now with your device, we are in a situation where you plug this thing into your wall and it is acting as the cloud. That device right. is a cloud. In fact, we should probably like paint a cloud on it or something like that or like make it look <laughs> like a cloud just to draw that correlation in people's minds. Like right. the cloud is just a computer that's sitting somewhere right. running all the time. <laughs> um, and yeah. in this case, it's yours. We call it a server, right? And mm -hmm. so um, everything lives on that device physically, okay? So if somebody comes in and just smashes it with a hammer, dumps water on it, there's a fire, all your stuff is gone. Mm -hmm. Not only are you cut off, but you can never get back again, okay? Like your passwords are gone forever. Any lightning, any Bitcoin you had stored in lightning channels is gone forever. And so yep. there's a certain amount of personal responsibility that running one of these devices requires at present in that you need to take care of it. You need to make sure that it's um, healthy and safe and that you do backups. So we obviously have a backups feature, right, for this. So you take a USB stick, it's very, very old school very early personal computers actually reminiscent you take the usb stick you plug it into the device you back it up you take the usb stick out and go put it somewhere safe that if something happens to your device you can get a new one plug the usb stick in and recover all your all your data the previous state that you had snapshotted okay so how, how much data so does it uh how much data are you able to uh store or to back up in that way like if you I have mean, you a terabyte worth terabyte hard drive sure so the devices that we sell today come with a 128 gigabyte uh high endurance micro sd card so flash memory gotcha. now that's it uh mm -hmm. so you have 128 gigs to work with um okay. this is plenty adequate for almost every use case right now unless you are trying to store like movies you know videos and stuff on your server which don't do that mm -hmm. um it's going to be fine, right? Files take up no space at all. Music, very minimal. Like, it's fine. The mm -hmm. biggest space hog that we have is Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin, if you want the full blockchain, is going to take upward of 300 gigabytes, not 128, which means you can't store it, right? So mm -hmm. the embassy today will not run a full archival node. It will run a full pruned node. Both okay. nodes are full, right? There's some mis communication throughout the Bitcoin community from time to time around what constitutes a full node. A full node means fully validating node, as in your node is capable of validating blocks and transactions such that you can transact on the Bitcoin network trustlessly. That's what a full node means, right? That you are enforcing the consensus rules of the network for mostly your personal benefit of being able to validate transactions and blocks without trust. A pruned node does that completely. It is a full node. I just want to make that very clear because people get confused sometimes. So just because you're pruning a node doesn't mean it's not a full node. It is. The difference between a pruned node and an archival node is that a pruned node only keeps locally the transactions and blocks that it cares about, meaning that are pertinent to its owner, me. So I run a pruned node and my node is like, I know everything that Matt needs to know about his Bitcoin life. And I don't care about the rest of it. Who cares about the rest of the network? As long as, cause it's a personal node, right? I'm not, mm -hmm. I'm not running a block explorer. I'm not telling my friends and family, Hey, 
use my node to look up some arbitrary address or transaction from six years, years ago. Mm-hmm. Like there's plenty of nodes and ways to go look things up like that, right? Mm-hmm. What I care about is my digital life, my, my Bitcoin existence, and that it is secure, protected, and trustless. So mm-hmm. I do this. The benefits of running a full archival node, like storing the entire blockchain and having all the indexes so that things can be looked up really quickly, the benefits of that is if you want to do advanced analytics and searches, as in like, I want to analyze the transaction graph of Bitcoin over the years, or I want to go look up some arbitrary block from 2010 and see what was in it, right? Mm -hmm. Or I want to uh, tell my friends and family that they can look up their balances on my node. And so like, that is the benefit of running a full archival node, um, which quite frankly, almost nobody needs. Mm -hmm. You don't need it. Most people are going to be just fine with a pruned node. Mm -hmm. One question, one quick question to insert here. Does the network, the Bitcoin network itself for its security require like the, is it, is, I guess, one way to phrase it here, is it beneficial for the network to have as many um, full archival nodes in existence uh, as possible? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, and one we get a lot, actually. So mm-hmm. uh, it is necessary for the Bitcoin network to have full archival nodes. Because otherwise, a new node joining the network would not be able to sync from Genesis. It would say, hey, I need block X, and nobody would have it because they're all running pruned nodes. So at some sort of absurd dystopian scale, it becomes Mm -hmm. a problem if everyone is running a full node, right? But you actually don't need that many full archival nodes to bootstrap everyone on the network, relatively speaking, right? Even if a small fraction of the nodes or for our mm-hmm. full archival, the network would be quite healthy. Mm-hmm. Secondly, Keegan, a member of our team here, is actually working on a proposal right now that would, um, that would enable pruned nodes to maintain a sort of probabilistic subset of the total data. So I run a pruned node, and it retains not just what I care about, but not everything either. It retains some subset of all the data. And then some other node that's pruned is retaining a different subset of all the data. And that you could actually write a protocol, an algorithm that would ensure with certainty that at any given moment, the network itself had N amount of copies of the full blockchain, right? So you could set it and be like, all right, we want there to be at any given moment, a thousand copies of the full blockchain distributed throughout the Bitcoin network, even Mm -hmm. though there might not be even a single computer that has the whole blockchain, Hmm. which means as I'm syncing from Genesis, somebody Mm -hmm. will have the block I'm looking for guaranteed, not only somebody, Mm -hmm. but a thousand, right? Like Mm -hmm. you, you can, you can guarantee that certain sub that the full chain exists, even if it's broken up. Mm -hmm. However, even if even with that protocol, even if that comes to full fruition, which would be very good because it would enable people with very small hard drives and stuff to run Bitcoin, it would be super easy and lean and fast, but mm-hmm. people would still run full archival nodes. Like mm-hmm. no matter how efficient we make running a pruned node and no matter how uh, viable and practical it is, there's still going to be people, probably myself too, that's just like, 
I'll run a full archival because why not? Mm-hmm. Like I have the, I have the disk space and it's healthy for the network. And so I'll run it. And so mm-hmm. um, like it is not a viable, it's not a valid sort of worry that pruned nodes are like a threat. An excessive amount of pruned nodes are, are an existential threat to the network. It's just not a right. viable threat. It's never going to get to that. Yeah, it makes sense. So we encourage pruned nodes. Absolutely. They're, they're, so, they're leaner. Right? Mm-hmm. When, when you run an embassy, by the time it's done syncing from Genesis, you, are, you have approximately six gigabytes of data total. So we took a 300 gigabyte blockchain and brought it down to six. And that's actually storing most of that. The majority of that six gigabytes is actually the current UTXO set. It's actually keeping track of the mempool. Right, right. Okay. Interesting. Mempool and UTXO. Yeah. So, right. um, so yeah, it's super lean, uh, barely takes any space at all. Now, all that said, we think it is critical. It's actually a huge like milestone in our development of our operating system to enable people to plug in external hard drives. You shouldn't be bound right. to a 128 gigabyte micro SD card. Like it's, it's not even the safe at long-term scale. That card is going to fail probably six to 10 years in, depending on how much you're abusing it. It's a high endurance card. We get guarantees from the manufacturers in terms of what it can take. Like these go through extensive testing. Mm -hmm. So we do not believe that we are putting anything out into the world today that is inherently unsafe, but memory fails, disks fail. And eventually um, without proper backups at some point in the distant future, uh, all flashcards will fail. So will all hard drives eventually too. They're all subject to potential failure. And so we think it's critical to enable people to go out and buy a two terabyte, you know, SSD or NVMe drive and plug it in to their embassy and use it for one or more services, right? And so we're mm-hmm. building as is with our general approach to building our software, we are building this in a very general modular way. As in, you can plug in a hard drive and say, I want to run Bitcoin and Lightning on this hard drive. And go mm-hmm. into Bitcoin and Lightning and select that drive as the place where you want all the data to live, and boom, it'll work. Then you can plug in a different hard drive, maybe something you know not doesn't need to be as fast or as big as what's required for Bitcoin. So you plug in a 500 gigabyte, you know, maybe cheaper SSD. You plug that in, and you go, I want this drive to store all of my photos and files for my self-hosted uh, data store, my self-hosted file server, mm-hmm. and. Um, and so you will be able to plug in as many drives as you want into this device and uh, set them as the destination uh, for data from any given service. Yeah, right. That's just step one. Then you will, we are going to enable cloud storage. Not, not hosted, not by us, right? You will be able to not only do backups, right? So let's talk about backups for a second. Remember earlier I said to do a backup, you got to plug in the USB stick, hit backup, and then it saves it on the drive. You can go put it somewhere. Mm-hmm. That's kind of inconvenient if you're not home. Right? It's also inconvenient if you are home. Just walking over there and putting the stick in and going retrieving it might be right. too much. So what you want to be able to do is from anywhere in the world and at any time, preferably even automated without you having to take action, just have your embassy and all of its services be backing up constantly. Right? Mm-hmm. But where is it backing up to? You don't want it backing up to another drive that's plugged into the embassy 
because if there's a fire in your home, it, they both go. You want it backed up to another location entirely. You need geographic redundancy. Right. And this is actually a lot easier than it might sound, than you might think. Um, all you have to do, and this will be, again, user-friendly, as everything else is, is you would go into the settings of your embassy and enter a address, maybe of your friend or your mother or family member or whatever, and they can allocate a drive on their embassy to do backups for you. Ah. And so I can, I can create a, a trusted network of people, and, and they're encrypted, by the way. So it's not like I'm putting my raw files and photos on mom's, you know, SSD drive. It's that my computer, my embassy would encrypt these things, send them over there and store them for safekeeping. And it would do this regularly. And then I could reciprocate and store her backups. That way Mm -hmm. we now have a a two geographic redundancy, but why not kick it up to four, right? Right. Why not have my stuff stored in four different places all at once? Um, And where it gets really cool is that I could pay for this. Right. So say like, I just have a ton of terabytes of storage. I just got hard drives, you know, sitting all Mm -hmm. over my house. I could Mm -hmm. sell storage space to people who wanted to use my drives to do encrypted backups and they could pay me in Bitcoin over lightning on demand without either of us needing to do anything or know anything about what's happening under the hood. I would basically set a price. I'd be like, Hey, if you want to, if you want to do backups on my computer 16 times a day, I'll give you up Mm -hmm. to you know, 500 gigabytes, 16 times a day. Here's my rate. Boom. You, you can tune it. And every time they send you data and ask for proof that you still have it, right? Cause you don't want them to trust you. Then we're back to the trust model. Right. I need to be able to prove to them constantly, every second, literally every second of the day that I have all their stuff hmm. without having to pass all their stuff over the wire. And you can do this using hashes and Merkle proofs, right? You can actually I could prove to somebody that I have their data um, by basically right. them challenging me at every moment of the day and me saying, yep, I have that. Yep, I have that. Yep, I have that. So they can infer that I have everything because I don't know what they're going to challenge me on. And I can prove it over and over and over again right. very efficiently. Um, and every time they, they send me new data or I prove to them, they just they pay me a couple sats. You know, I, I make money. I'm sitting now. I got a server sitting at home. And I'm just making money by doing backups for people. Right. Yeah, we're building that. Yeah, that's very cool. Yes. It's not it's not coming now. <laughs> yeah. We got that's a lot of work to do. <laughs> no, we want it now. Come yeah, on, man. Well, that's that's been a thing. As that's the first thing right. that happens when people discover us and they get into our products and they join well, our we want everything. Oh my god, yeah. It's like <laughs> it's like they get it though. I mean, to right. our credit, they get it. Like our product makes people go, Oh my god, the possibilities are limitless. And then mm-hmm. next thing we know, they're in our channel being like, hey, when can we get this? When can we get this? When can we get this? I'm like, we are five people sitting in a room. <laughs> we are not a big company. We're just a couple of people sitting around a table trying to build something here. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. So you are now, you, I, I saw an announcement that you guys got a little funding and you're now hiring. Um, I, I'd love to kind of get get your perspective on what where the company's at because I, I've heard you know a couple of conversations before about like strategizing on the profitability aspect of this being an open source company and wanting to retain that um, that same ethos uh, into the future as a as a sovereign computing company but also remaining profitable like most of these ventures uh, 
in in open source computing have largely been out of like the goodwill of of programmers right so yeah. what does that look like for you guys um yeah you nailed it that's what all the investors wanted to know so, <laughs> right um, yeah i mean there there is a crack okay there is there is a space between uh free and open source software and proprietary you know custodial software there's a space mm -hmm. between where you can build a business hmm. it's a very narrow space okay and um, it it centers around brand, it centers around speed, uh, and and oddly, it's this ties into brand. It centers around trust. Okay, it's this we don't have to trust you, but we do. You can't help it. It's like we you trust the 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 reliability, the quality, and the security of products that you're used to, and people that you trust, and brands that you trust. Mm -hmm. There is nothing we can do as a company, nothing to stop somebody from taking our open source code, cloning it, calling it something else, hosting it on a Tor V3 hidden service as a fully <laughs> compiled image so that anyone on earth can go download it. There is nothing we can do to stop that. Right. I'm also not worried about it at all because that is bootlegged software. That is dangerous stuff for 99.9% .9 of the population. They are not going to the dark web to go download bootleg software from an anonymous person. Nor is there any incentive for that person to do that other than to mess with us. There's no reason for them to do that, right? Because they're paying because they to operate that server. They're, they're risking... Um, they're taking risks by doing that, right? They're taking risks in the sense that our license is very clear, which is that you're not allowed to do that. We, we made our software open source for a couple of reasons, right? Some of which are misunderstood. Like the main reason that we open sourced our software is because we want it, we want ourselves in the light of building a decentralized entity to be expendable, right? We think that that is important. In fact, we think that making ourselves expendable cause us to live longer as a company than we otherwise would have. Let's say Start9 was building what we're building today and that the software was completely closed source and proprietary. What happens? Okay, give it a year, maybe more, maybe less, and somebody walks into this office and says, here's a gag order, here's what you're going to do. <laughs> you're going to build backdoors into this thing, you're going to feed the data here. We want to know who the customers are, yada, yada, yada. We become subject to coercion, mm -hmm. right? Right. By open sourcing the software, the possibility, the probability of that happening drops dramatically because what you get instead of a company filled with people that you can call and talk to and cooperate with, what you get is a 30-headed monster of... <laughs> 30 different anonymous organizations around the world shipping the same exact software to the same exact customers. So if you are a regulating entity, you have no incentive to essentially shatter one thing into 30 things. You'd rather have the former. So we are right. actually protecting ourselves from the possibility or probability, because anything can still happen, from the probability of coercion 
um, by open sourcing the software. It's essentially a, a little bit of a trump card. It's essentially a little bit of like a, you know, this is the this is the the escape hatch. It's like right. It's the fail safe, and because right. the fail safe exists, we probably won't need it. We will probably never need to do that to to pull the ripcord and just let it loose because because uh, that's not a desirable turn of events for the people who would want to stop an individual from using their own computer in private, which right. I'm not even sure why they'd want to do anyway. So, look, okay, so that was kind of your question and kind of not. So I know that was a little bit of background knowledge. How do you build a business on this? So yes, it's that we are going to be the brand and the trusted entity that people, um, you know, recognize and therefore will return to us and purchase our products because they know they're getting quality. Um, Mm -hmm. Secondly, you can view it as a bit of a donation, right? Like a lot of companies will say, here's the product for free and here's our donation address. We're saying, here's the product for a price. That's your donation. Like if you like what we're doing and you believe in the future that we believe in and you think we're doing a good job, buy the product. Even if you can go get it for free. Like why? Help. Buy it. You know what I mean? Like that's our donation. We don't want donations. We want to sell value for value. Uh, And that's what we're doing. We're a business. And the fact that you could get it for free with a certain amount of effort or maliciousness uh, like why you're clearly expressing that you like our stuff by wanting it. So pay for it. And what we found is that people are willing to do that. Humans are not, they don't steal by nature. Like people will pay for something when they believe it is a value for value exchange. They would prefer to, it helps their self-esteem. They sleep better at night. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that somebody who compiles a source code from scratch is stealing. We encourage it. Right. In fact, I almost view that as a little bit of a, um, a filter. Anybody who shows up and starts building Embassy OS from source and asking questions, I immediately am like, hey, you want to <laughs> you wanna work on some stuff here? Because we could right. use some help. Like, <laughs> it's, the, it's a nice even just kind of a way to vet, you know, um, people in the world who are, are fit a certain characteristic that we need, which right. is community development on open source software. So I love mm-hmm. that. I love when people do that. Um, what we don't want is somebody taking the fully convenient, fully compiled code, you know, shipping on their own hardware device and taking all of our hard earned effort and basically, you know, taking it from us. Like we built it mm-hmm. and um, we want to keep building it. And to do that, we need income. So, um, yeah, it's like, it's, uh, it reminds me kind of bringing things in as kind of in a, in a metaphorical sense or a, uh, an analogy might be say the church like the early church or uh, a religious movement where it's like there's a spiritual um, movement a a group of people just experiencing an amazing revelatory experience and and a change of life and and it's free like there's no uh, they're experiencing this tremendous amount of value in this community and they're all contributing right to this to this uh movement but then there are always there there could potentially be false teachers or people who want to construe take this movement and like and just capture capture the energy of of people into their own personal network and they're gonna sap 
it's uh, called shit G. coins <laughs> right <laughs> yeah so it's like and you know i've i've kind of experienced this working with uh just doing a couple meetups here in miami and you know having an open forum you're always going to have like you, you can't like stop nefarious actors from like coming in and being a part of it to to a certain extent it's if it's going to be free it's free like people are going to use it for for whatever they whatever purposes they desire no we we just plow forward i don't focus Mm -hmm. on the person who's going to try to you know distribute our software on some side channel is whatever people are going to do what they're going to do we are going to deliver a fantastic product at an affordable price we are going to provide excellent customer service and education around not only our own product, but around the entire idea of self-sovereignty and digital self-sovereignty in specific. And people are going to appreciate that and they're going to buy our products. And I'm not worried about the fringe of that movement, right? Our right. customers are very happy with us. Um, right. We have an incredibly passionate set of customers. It's not just random people who think that what we're doing is cool. It's, People who are using the product and whose reaction to that use is, oh my God, I want to help you guys any way that I can. Whether it's buying it, referring it to my friends, uh, helping in the community chat, doing some marketing. Like we have volunteers. We're a company and we have people who want to volunteer, which is just a testament to the sort of genuine nature of the team and the product. And we're not going to lose that. Not on my watch. Right. No. This is real. What we're doing here is genuine and real and it's gritty and we mean it. We're not looking for sneaky ways to build in back doors and monetize in these crazy ways in the future. We think that if we do our job right, that we are going to disrupt some of the largest, most powerful companies in the world. I'm not talking about putting them out of business, but we are going to take a bite out of Apple Mm -hmm. and it's going to be a tiny little nibble and nobody's even going to notice. And then we're going to take a bigger bite. And we'll see what happens. Game on, right? But mm-hmm. that is what we're going after. Our market at scale, our addressable market, is everyone with a computer. Everyone with a computer right. should be connecting to their own server, not to Google, not to Apple, not to Microsoft, not to Amazon. They should be connecting to their own device in their own home that is geographically redundant, Secure, private, by default, not because somebody Mm -hmm. said it gave you permission, not because we value your privacy, we're going to keep it nice and secure on our servers until we get hacked or until the wrong person internally gets bribed or until you turn out to be on the wrong list from whatever corrupt jurisdiction you live in and, you know, end up in jail. No, it's we're building sovereign computing infrastructure for the sovereign individual. And uh, we mean it, man. Like. But that said, we yeah, need help. Yeah. We totally need help. We're completely overwhelmed and spread thin. <laughs> like the, so what, yeah. So what are the areas that, that you're that you need help? You're, uh, you know, just as I'm networking and I, you know, I saw you guys some of, some of the postings, yeah, uh, that you had on your website. But but um, share. And yeah, I mean, what we have on the website is the is the kind of official you know listing. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, let me go through them. We need devs. Period. Uh, I need in-house, full-time, dedicated developers. 
uh, across a variety of different, uh, you know, uh, skills, languages. Um, the back end of Embassy OS is written in Rust. The front end is written in Angular and TypeScript. Um, we, we build things that are functional in nature, functional programming, and strongly typed. So functional programming, strong types, uh, very secure stuff. Uh, Rust is, is the latest and greatest. It's the hottest thing out there. Um, and so, you know, what we're building is exciting, cutting edge, advanced technology on the coding front and on the product front. Uh, and we need devs who want to come internally and, and devote themselves to this for a wage to actually come work for the company. On top of that, it's open source software. So we welcome contributions from anyone anywhere who wants to come in and add and improve the code, uh, potentially even on a bounty basis, right? Even if it's not like a full-time thing, if somebody just wants to take on some issue, bug or new feature, they can do so. And, um, you know, we may get an official bounty program set up at some point, but for now, if someone wanted to do something and was just like, Hey, if I do this, how much Bitcoin can you send me? Then we'll cut a deal and I'll send you some Bitcoin. You build it. Um, so we're looking for devs period, as many as we can find, um, it through whatever means, you know, whatever compensation mechanism necessary. Um, and then on top of that, we have some more sort of business roles, uh, you know, uh, non-technical stuff. Well, they're still kind of technical. Everything here is a little technical, but, um, so we have an operations role, which is, um, really going to be a lot of my kind of, you know, right hand person where I I'm running the business, so to speak. Right. And I have a lot of different departments. I call them departments. They're departments of one of me. Uh, and I just need to, I need help. So I need somebody who can come in and handle all of our vendor relationships, um, you know, supply chain management, inventory tracking, shipping and logistics, um, you know, interfacing with, with customer issues, not necessarily support from like a technical standpoint, but like people who are, uh, need to do a return for whatever reason, which we've never had to do. Uh, I think actually, I think we did one, there was a raspberry Pi that wasn't good, but anyway, just stuff like that, like day, day to day operations. And that role is going to grow. It's going to balloon. In fact, uh, and I'm hoping that this role could eventually grow into becoming like a COO type of role uh, once we have more people in the company. Uh, marketing is another lead position that we are hiring for and one that I have sort of taken uh, on my shoulders to date. Um, you know, we have spent zero dollars on marketing. Now, we attended two conferences in 2020. So you could view that as marketing. Uh, I guess it is. Um, but it was also educational for us. Like we were going there to learn and also to sell. Um, but other than those two conferences, we've spent zero money on marketing. Every, all of our brand awareness um, and sales have come through organic uh, kind of word of mouth, me doing podcasts, people talking about us um, on Twitter. Uh, so mostly Twitter and podcasts. Um, I need someone to come in and really take that to the next level and grow our awareness, right? We have built something really cool and it's only going to get better and we need more people to know about it. And I think one of the best ways that we're going to accomplish that is through education. So for me, marketing, for now at least, marketing equals education. We need to be educators in Bitcoin, in privacy, in sovereignty, all related to your digital life, right? And possibly even beyond, who knows? But just the idea of living a sovereign digital life um, is a thing that is growing in popularity. People, more and more people on the non-technical side too, 
are interested in getting off of the Amazon and Apple and Google drug. They're interested in taking back control of their digital sovereignty and privacy, and they don't know how to do it. And I don't just want to say buy an embassy. That's not enough. I want to educate people on what the problem is, what the solution is, and what practical steps they can start taking to protect themselves and their families from these growing uh, concerns. And so I want someone to come in here and take this on as a role, as you know, a marketing person for sure. And there will be lots of traditional kind of like, you know, we need analytics on our, on our website and like some of the more kind of just normal marketing things. So somebody with a marketing background, digital marketing background, but with an emphasis on education. So educational materials, YouTube videos, blog posts, email, uh, you know, uh, newsletters where it's every week. It's like, did you know that you could blah with your passwords and not need a third party? Right. And not even it being selling embassies, just teaching people how to get off the grid while staying on the grid, I guess. Um, And so that's the marketing approach that I'm looking for is somebody who, who understands marketing and education and can combine the two to make education marketing. Um, Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, that's what's going to sell our, our operating system and and device. Uh, And then the last role that we're looking for um, is really as many of these people as we can get but one to sort of lead them all, which is community, right? And this ties into marketing and the education in the sense that while your educational track may begin by watching a YouTube video, at some point, you're going to have a question. And you're going to want to ask that question to somebody in the company and get a clear, straight answer. It could be just educational, or it could be an actual support issue where you're using an embassy and uh, you just don't know what to do next. Like you go, okay, I installed, you know, Bitwarden. How do I blah? Mm-hmm. And even if there's a YouTube video and documentation, most people are going to go straight to the, to the phone or to the email and say, how do I do it? We need uh, a lot of like community members who are willing to like represent the company in our community channels, in uh, email, DMs, stuff like that to help, um, others feel welcome and comfortable in this very odd world of sovereignty. It's like, it's nerve wracking. You're like, am I doing it right? Am I leaking yeah. things? Am I, is, am I going to lose all my, my stuff? And they want to feel like there are people, experts who are there to help. And so I'm looking for a community lead, somebody who can like take this on as a broad project of like, Hey, Nobody will ever hear hold music at start nine. Nobody will ever get, we'll get back to you in 72 hours to an email, right? You got a problem. Somebody is here to help now. Mm-hmm. And we know what we're talking about. And you actually are important to us because you're important to our entire ethos and what we're trying to build, the world we're trying to build. So in other words, we take customer service uh, as seriously as Amazon did in the early days and don't anymore. Um, but we wanted, we want it to be community driven. I want the community to be the customer support people and it can even involve compensation. So it'd be an extremely modular system, almost like an Uber like system where people can sign up for shifts, right? Like 
Yeah, I'll man the I'll man the Telegram channel from two to f- six p.m. next week, and it comes with a a price tag. It's like, yeah, anyone who wants to man the channel from that time to that time next week, go for it. You'll represent the company, and you get this much Bitcoin out of it. And uh, you know, and you need to be certified. Like, not just anyone can do this. Like, you have to know what you're right. doing. So the so I want this person who's the lead to like build this program to build this sort of international on-demand contractor program for community support. Yeah, wow. that, seems, that seems like a really cool project. Between the education and the community the, uh, support, we expect people to feel very welcome here. Right, yeah. right. Wonderful. And I, I can see how, um, what's cool to me is it it's a like, it's profitable, you know, the uh, company, a venture that is like, obviously you guys have big dreams. You, you have a, this massive vision of change, uh, but it's also part of this growing network of personal sovereignty that, and, uh, and movements towards personal sovereignty that is, uh, I think, extremely important it's in a growing importance um over over time so yeah man i thanks so much for your time i i'm really excited about this project and seeing seeing where you guys take it um definitely gonna get my embassy software order in and you know play around with it see how see how it can improve my own personal interaction uh yeah with the digital world I appreciate you inviting me on, um, reaching out. Cool. I, uh, yeah, I like talking about it clearly. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I really enjoyed this. So thanks a lot, Matt. Yeah, you too. And, uh, stay in touch, you know? Yeah, I will. So I'll, I'll end it there and dude. It, yeah. If you, um, yeah, that, that was, I, I thought, that was an amazing episode. <laughs> well, let me know. Uh, uh, let me know when you get it hosted, and I'll pedal it around Twitter, and hopefully get you some more viewers. And yeah, hopefully this benefits both of us. I think it will. For sure, for sure. Yeah, this is this has been just a such an amazing project to like, you know, talk to talk to people like you who are doing. Um, really cool projects and and just learn so much more about about the community and yeah especially from the business side of things uh there's uh yeah yeah it's it's a whole other world so it is we're we're walking a fine line here right right we're we're trying to shoot a very narrow gap between open source you know kind of community built project and Mm-hmm. company that wants to make a profit and we just think it can be done i i absolutely mm-hmm. believe that you can thread that needle it just requires some precision like we have to get it right if we err too far on one side or the other then we will become one side or the other if we err too far on the business side and strictly are out for profit on a quarterly basis with no consideration for the future or you know um real disruption then we will be we will fade into history and become a decent little hardware device that once existed and right. if we go on the other side 
then sure, I mean, we could end up building wonderful technology, but as individuals, like it's harder to capture that value. I know I want mm -hmm. to build my personal resources. I want to get rich. I want other people who are building great things and who are producers to get rich because that's the people we want to have the money, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. like if, if all the people who are building all the Bitcoin and great technology in the world, see with Bitcoin, we had this weird situation where it was like, yeah, nobody's getting paid to build Bitcoin. I mean, there are some funds that pay devs and stuff like that, but you could just buy Bitcoin and hold it. And that was essentially income. Right. We don't have a shit coin. We don't have that ability, right? It's like we want to build a world where the people who are building real good value products make a lot of money because if those mm -hmm. people have a lot of money, then they're more powerful in the world and we can, we can do things. It's like, mm -hmm. don't give me a ton of money. I'm going to piss people off, <laughs> right? Like if I end up yeah. making a lot of money in this world, I'm going to piss off a lot of people because I'm going to use it. <laughs> right, right. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go buy a yacht with it. I'm going to use it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I, that's I, that's the point is we want to make money. 100%. As, Selling a great uh, product. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's what we should all want. Um, right. I was actually, yeah. So one, of the, one question I had as we were talking about the Internet of Things and um, you know, this is a sovereign personal personal server that's it's located in your home, and it's going to be tied to um, all, all the different functions of your home as well. And I uh, it's sort of an undeveloped thought, but I've thought a lot about just you know the shared economy with like Airbnbs and Ubers and uber services and all that stuff like and seeing these comp like it's shared it's supposedly it, they started out supposedly as like a decentralized platform or whatever but it's not a, it's not a platform it's it's a company yep and they're you know they're controlling everything and they're controlling it's everyone's efficient access. labor deployment is what it is uber right. uber is a workforce management company they manage right. a workforce of people they're like a temp labor agency they're just using technology to do it yep. more efficiently and for a particular purpose for rides. Right. Mm -hmm. But you know, those people work for Uber. I drove for Uber years ago. When it yeah, first same here. <laughs> and it was, it was a very valid form of making money. It was a great mm -hmm. thing and you never had to do it. And so it's, it's a whole new way of thinking about employment and I'm all for it. Mm -hmm. um, but Uber itself is not a platform. They right. are they are going to squeeze the the center as much as they can. Ultimately, they're a broker. Mm -hmm. Uber is sitting between supply and demand of labor. Here's somebody yep. who needs a ride. Here's somebody who has a ride. Uber is the fucking elephant in the room that is taking up all yeah. the value, that's sucking all the value out of that equation. And you know, I don't, I'm not mad at them. It's like they're no. providing a service. They're making that connection, mm -hmm. but. That can be done yeah. without them. You can yeah, build exactly. a decentralized peer-to-peer -peer Uber for anything uh, without them. In fact, I have built some of it already. So prior to Start9, prior to my previous job, I built an application 
that is now available on iOS and Android, which is not decentralized and peer-to-peer, but lays the foundation of what that experience would at least look like called Work Blast. Go look it up. Mm-hmm. Go to getworkblast.com. It is my app. And what Work Blast is, is a platform for building Ubers. Okay? It essentially yeah. allows a business, any business, to uberize their workforce so instead of having like this schedule this rigid schedule what you Mm -hmm. can do is create a tentative schedule right like here's when people are working but using work blast employees can very efficiently swap their shifts okay it's a shift trading platform but if you think about a shift trading platform as its essence what does that mean it means supply and demand of labor It literally means somebody is saying, I need labor and somebody else going, I have labor to give and creating that connection. And so Work Blast actually establishes the primitives of what would be necessary for a peer-to-peer labor sharing or labor connection service where anyone could actually be Uber. Here's an example. And Work Blast is used for this today. It has about 6,000 users on the platform, okay? It's a free app that I built and gave away. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, hopefully someday I can sell it to somebody or something and make some money off of it, but it's really, you know, we'll see what happens. Mm -hmm. Right now it's a free product. But um, here's how you could use it, and some people do use it. Let's say that I uh, know a bunch of kids who can lift things, Okay. So I was a track and field coach for seven years. And while I was a track and field coach, I had a small army of high school kids that were constantly looking for a way to make a buck. Right. So I had family members and friends call me and say, Hey Matt, do you know anyone who could help me move? Anyone who could come over to my house and dig up the garden or pull some weeds or whatever. I just need work done. Right. Well, I'd be like, yeah, I got people. I got tons of people. Let me see who wants to work and I'll send them your way. That just made me Uber. I am Uber in that scenario. Somebody said, I need something. And I went, I know who has it. Let me connect you. And I made the connection. Okay. So if Uber's a multi-billion dollar company, can't I make a few bucks by making similar kinds of connections? I should be able to, right? So I built Work Blast. And what Work Blast allows me to do not as a worker and not as a demand for labor, but as a person who wants to be Uber for a particular segment of the economy, I can use Work Blast to essentially put all my high school kids into a pool. I'll call it people who pull weeds, weed pullers, okay? Yeah. And they're all people that I have pre-qualified, pre-vetted to pull weeds. Like I know they have good, strong hands, okay? And then I have another pool of people who want to help move furniture for, for someone. And I vetted them. They all have real strong legs. They can move furniture, no problem. Mm -hmm. And so now if somebody in the world is like, I need someone to move furniture, all they have to do is push a button. They literally have to just enter the time and place that they need help and push a button. And then automatically all of my people who are qualified to do the thing that they need will get notified at the same time. All of their phones will go beep, 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 beep. And the first person to say, I'll do it, gets it. 
it's a fastest finger game. He gets it. And then it shuts down for everybody else. Right. Let's mm-hmm. say the person said, I need three people to help me move. No problem. All they do is they set the quota to three and I notify all my people yeah. and the first three people to claim the work, get it. And then it automatically tells who's going where it tells these people, all right, you need to be at this place at this time. Here's who you're seeing. Here's how much it pays the whole deal. And I just facilitated a connection between supply and demand for some, for some arbitrary subset of the economy. Work blast does that today. That is what that app does. And right. it does it really well. It has like 55 star ratings on, on the uh, app store. It's got like 45 star ratings on the play store. It's free. It works. It's wonderful. I have some pretty decent sized companies using it actually. So like Southwest airlines is using work blast so that their mechanics can trade shifts with each other. Um, but anyway, so I say all this because I know where you were going with the original kind of question. And I want you to know, I've thought about it. Like this is absolutely something I have thought a lot about, have taken active steps towards actually building. Oh yeah. And eventually it will be completely decentralized. We can decentralize blue collar labor without any central, uh, Ubers or anything like that. Like, any, mm-hmm. any kind of work that fits a description yeah. where basically Joe and Bob, I don't care who shows up, Joe or Bob, as long as they have the same skill set, as long as they are both equally qualified, I don't care who shows up. I just mm-hmm. need them here at this time to do this thing. That fits a massive portion right. of our economy. There's an enormous amount of our economy that that works uh, yeah. for. And, um, and there's no reason at all why it should be based on this concept, this anachronistic, archaic concept of a job. Jobs are a right. thing of the past. All there is, is work. There's supply and demand of labor. Somebody needs work done. Somebody has work to provide, make that connection, make it efficiently. Who the hell needs a job? Like, mm-hmm. Jobs are different when it's project-based, as in like, I need the same person every day right? Like, cause you're building upon yourself. Right. Those are still good for jobs. Like I need to hire a developer. I cannot just outsource everything. It needs to be the same person, mm-hmm. but that's only a, that's only a portion of our economy. Mm-hmm. A major portion of our economy is interchangeable from day to day. I don't care who shows up today. I need, I need somebody to wait tables, right? right? Do you know, do you know my menu? Do you know how we do things at this restaurant? If so, you're qualified. Right. Yeah. That could, I mean, this could easily be integrated for, for your customers, customer community support. Um, That's what type, I'm using. Type thing, right? <laughs> I'm going to yeah. use work blast. Right. To, to, so that people can uh, pick and pick up shifts for customer yeah. support. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, another thing that I wanted to mention though, is like with Airbnb, I think there's a particular uh, like, use case there with with the hardware in someone's home right if to because this i guess the problem one of the sorry you're you're able to like use the home automation system to basically uh control access to a domicile and and with uh, with Bitcoin, with the Lightning Network integrated into the system, you'd be able to uh, 
to to do the Airbnb thing in a in a totally more totally decentralized way as well, right? Like that would be really useful for people who are managing properties, vacation properties, I think. Yeah. Maybe Airbnb. that's down the line, but Airbnb is in a way the Uber of of hotels, right? It's yeah. uh, they're connecting people who have a home with people who need a home for a temporary period of time. And they're facilitating that connection. It's very similar to, to Uber and therefore could be disrupted by the same type of technology where mm-hmm. um, I could just post the availability of my place on, a, on an open network that could be filled. Now, you know, reputation is a big deal here. What Airbnb right. does, what Uber does, one of the biggest values that they add to this whole equation is star ratings. Yep. And so it's a lot harder to maintain valid reputational systems in a decentralized network because identity is pseudonymous. Right. Right. So if I get a bad rap, all I got to do is change my identity. So until we have some sort of trusted, because it's trustless identity system, it's going to be very hard to do reputation based recommendations. It's a challenge. Right. It is a serious riddle that nobody has solved yet. Microsoft has right. spent a lot of time talking about like self-sovereign identity and distributed identity. And we all know that that's just going to be a Microsoft database. <laughs> but, yeah, but, like, yeah. but it is a real problem. Mm-hmm. How do you prove right. that you are you? I mean, sure. Public key cryptography works. As in like, I can, I can show you that like, I am this person who has five-star ratings by signing a message with a private key that only that person has. Mm-hmm. So it's easy for me to affirm that I am someone, mm-hmm. but it, it is impossible to prove that I'm not someone. As in, I can prove uh, to you that I am this person, but I can't prove to you that I'm not that person. Like... <laughs> There's somebody on the network who is a thief, who is stealing, who has, you know, sh- shouldn't be staying in anybody's home. <clears throat> it could be anyone. Mm-hmm. You have no idea who it is mm-hmm. it, because the identity could be synonymous. So it's like there's this inherent risk until you can actually tie a private key to a real world identity, which is very dangerous to do because now you're back to, you know, you're back to being able to stop somebody. You're like, oh, I yeah, know who that yeah, person like, is. I know who owns that. Out. So it's, yeah, so it's a super dangerous road, but but an important one if we ever want to build reputational, decentralized reputational systems. Hmm. Identity is paramount. You have to know who the person is. They have to be able to prove who they are. Now, maybe the maybe the first thing I said is enough. Maybe it's enough for me to just prove who I am which means everybody new to the network is going to be suspect as in until you have built some reputation, you're Mm -hmm. a suspect because you could be anybody. You could be that person who got banned and came back under a different alias. You could be them. We don't know. Um, Which means you need somebody to vouch for you. Basically you enter the network and then somebody's who is really trusted, who's been around for a long time can say, yeah, you know who this person is. I vouch for them. They can sort of bootstrap your reputation. So, sort of thinking out loud in real time right now, but yeah, you know, yeah. It can be done. You can build systems like that. It's just, we're not even close. Right. Right. Yeah. I, well, 
I love talking about this stuff, Matt, as, <laughs> as you as you can tell. And, yeah, I actually got it. I'm sure we could go on and on. Yeah, but thanks for your time, buddy. Yeah, you too, man. And I'll let you know as soon as this is published and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Yeah, right on. Have a good one. All right, See you too. All right. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. Thank you, Matt, for coming on. I think you and the team at Starting Line Labs just have the potential to really make an impact for securing people's privacy and sovereignty in their digital life in a simple and user-friendly way. Be sure to check out their website, startninelabs.com, as well as their Twitter for more updates at Start9Labs. And thank you again, Matt, for coming on. I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you all for listening and being a part of the Bitcoin path. If you have any questions, comments, feedback about the show or anything else, feel free to email me at info at thebitcoinpath.com. And if you like the episode, feel free to hit, hit the like button, subscribe, and support the show by sharing it with any of, any of your friends that you think might resonate with the message. If you do want to check out more episodes, events, or learn how to support the show financially, be sure to visit thebitcoinpath.com. And until next time, may you live a meaningful life and enjoy your freedom as a sovereign individual.